following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Um, let's see here. Where are we at? You know, guys, uh, time out. I got my wrong sermon up. Unless you want to hear me read from last week's sermon, we're, we're not in the right spot here. Sorry about that. Would you just keep praying just for a minute while I, while I find this? What in the world? Okay. Okay. All right, here we go. Found it. We're in business. Okay. I know, I was nervous. I've never had that before where I go to preach a sermon and it's like, oh, this is last week's sermon. All right. Well, there are some topics that I don't have to work very hard to pique your interest in. Um, Maybe at the top of the list is our, our subject matter for today. Um, that is sex. And since I just mentioned the word, I probably have your attention um, already. What we're going to do is we're just going to keep plugging through the book of Ephesians. Now, if you're new to Sacred City Church, let me assure you, we're not like this shock jock kind of church where we're just trying to find all the controversial stuff to talk about and constantly go into this. We've been slowly working our way through the book of Ephesians, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, um, and the Lord has providentially brought us to this passage on this day to work our way through. Now, as we've gone through the book of Ephesians, uh, I've been framing up this whole series under the umbrella of or through the lens of I identity formation. Um, The the book of Ephesians tells us in chapters 1 through 3 basically who you are in Christ. If you have put your faith in Jesus, this tells us what is most true about you. And and as chapters 1 through 3 go, it kind of tells us all these different facets to our identity in Christ. And here as we come to chapter 5, the Apostle Paul reaffirms pieces of this gospel identity that we have. The first thing that he says, listen, you guys are beloved children. If you, are, if you believe in Jesus, if you, have, you know what the gospel is and you have put your trust in Christ, you have been adopted by God. He is now your heavenly father. You have brothers and sisters in the faith. You are a beloved child of God. That's the first thing. The first piece of your identity he reaffirms today. And the second piece of your identity is that you are a saint, Now, this is a word that we don't really use a lot. In fact, we have a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be a saint. We think of like, you know, Mother Teresa or some sort of like super pious, upper echelon, hyper spiritual kind of person. But what Paul talks about, that's not what he has in mind. Like the A squad of of spirituality and the B squad. He says, if you are in Christ, you have been made righteous. The blood of Christ washes you, it cleanses you, it purifies you so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see all your foibles and sins and your mess-ups and mistakes. What he sees is the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. Therefore, Paul calls you saints or the holy ones in Christ. And, and what happens here as we move into chapter 5, in fact, chapters 4, 5, and 6 really have this focus of telling us how to live into this identity. 
chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 tell us specifically, or I guess we're really going to focus through chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 today is our main focus. It tells us how to live out of this gospel identity, how to live as beloved children, how to live as the holy ones that we've been made through the gospel. In other words, Paul is teaching us how to practice the way of Jesus, not to just be people who believe in Jesus, but people who follow Jesus with every area of our life. And as we practice the way of Jesus, what Paul has been showing us is this is a lifestyle, I spit all over, this is a lifestyle of worship. See, for a Christian, worship isn't something that happens for an hour on a Sunday morning, or if you come to Sacred City, an hour and a half or an hour, two hours, whatever it might be, right? It's not just something that is segmented on a Sunday morning. The Christian life is a life of worship, right? It's meant to be lived to the glory of God in every area, every facet of our lives. And here in verses one and two, Paul commands us to live into this gospel identity in two particular ways. Let's take a look. This is uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, so therefore instantly points us back to all of the other realities that we already have discovered in the gospel. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul right here in these two, first two verses is commanding us as Christians. He's, he's concerned not, not necessarily those outside of the church, those who don't yet belong to Jesus, but to those who are of the church. He's commanding us to emulate God in two primary characteristics about God. Two distinct traits. The first one, he says to imitate God. And, and the, the chief, the primary, if we were just to have one adjective to describe God, the adjective that we would go to is that God is holy. Right? That's the descriptor that we would use. Because holy means set apart. It means there's something distinct, completely other, something higher and above any other thing in creation. And God is holy. He's pure, he's good, he's perfect, he's righteous. So he says, imitate God in his holiness, in his purity, in his set-apartness. And the second thing is to imitate God in his love, how we ought to walk in love. And not just any kind of love, not just not just a love of our own invention, but a specific kind of love, a sacrificial, self-giving kind of love, a love that I give myself so that others might live. That's the kind of love that Paul calls us into. And if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, that means your life, the rest of your life, is going to be spent progressing and growing in these two areas, in holiness Right? in looking more like God and in walking in love, loving like God has loved us. Those are the two primary things where your sanctification is going to be unfolding. And while we see these positive commands in verse, verses one and two, right, you know, imitate God, walk in love, those are all, like, I think we can all kind of get behind that in some regard. Um, it sounds good, it sounds nice. They're positive things to, to command for God's people, but then we go to verses three through seven, and actually further on into verse 14, 
Paul actually switches. He goes from talking about the positive command to the negative side of the command. So he goes to this command of doing this to not doing this, which follows the pattern which we see in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says this is, this is our spiritual act of sanctification, is, is to put off the old self and put on the new self. There, there are things in your character, there are things in, in your behavior and conduct that need to be ejected from your life so that you can live a new kind of way now as the gospel shapes you. And so here in verse 3, Paul makes his prohibitions. After saying, be imitators of God and walk in love, he says, he shows this contradiction here between these two things, of being an imitator of God and walking in love. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you or as as proper among the saints, or as proper among the holy ones. These three things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, it's sort of this unholy triad of sinful old self behavior that before we come to Jesus, it's sort of just the default way of life that we live. And, and when Paul prohibits these things, it, we need to define them, all right? We, we've got to work through some definitions. So, like, for the next two minutes here, we've got some definitions to work through. When he says, put off covetousness, what is that exactly? Well, covetousness is an or, inordinate desire for that which isn't yours. This week, I was mowing my lawn, um, and my neighbor drove up, and we were chatting for a little bit. I noticed he got a new Jeep truck, right? I don't really love it, but, um, but I like the idea of having a truck, and I was just, we were sitting there talking about how great his truck was, and the whole time I was like, damn, I can't wait till I get a truck. I gotta get a truck. I have to. You know, and in that moment, right, this desire. Now, thankfully, the Lord restrained me, and I can be grateful for what I have. I've got a cool moped, so that, that I'm content in that. <laughs> right, but, but if that were to just go off the rails... Right, that would be covetousness. If that were to drive everything that it did, that all of my, my life sort of revolves around this pursuit of giving, getting this truck or getting what I want, right, that's covetousness, this inordinate desire for that which isn't yours. So Paul says, put that away. And he says, put off impurity. Now, impurity is anything that is inconsistent with God and his holiness. Right, th this covers a wide variety of things. Some of the big things, right, we could just put it under the umbrella of sin. Sin is impurity. Sin is a, a blemish in the purity of what we were meant to be like. Things like pride, greed, sloth, unrighteous anger that spins into wrath, slander, gossip, right? These are all things that Paul says in your new identity, in your gospel identity, you have to eject those things from your life so that you can walk in love and be imitators of God. Now, while these two things, that look at impurities and covetousness, while they can be non-sexual and include everything that I just named, when Paul is talking about these three and the way that he lumps them all together, he clearly is looking at these three things through a sexual tint. He says, he says put off sexual immorality, right? The, the Greek word is porneia. And it's at the top of the list because it, it, everything else trickles down from this. Now, what is, what is sexual immorality? This is a question that if you ask our culture, they won't be able to give you a very good answer for because everything is changing, everything is adapting. Every opinion, every shift, every generation, there's a new shift. We have no idea. We, we're, we don't have any way to define this in our culture. 
But the Bible, thankfully, identifies and defines what this is. Sexual immorality is any sexual act or impulse that happens outside of God-honoring sexuality. Right? Anything that happens outside of the confines, specific, here, here's, how, here's how the Bible defines God-honoring sexuality. It's defined in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus reaffirms it later in Matthew 19. God honoring sexuality. The context for this is with one man and one woman in the lifelong covenant of marriage. See, it, that, that's where sexuality is meant to be expressed. And any expression of, of sexuality that happens outside of that context is labeled as sexu- sexual immorality. Because here in marriage, what we do in marriage is you do with your body what you've already done with your life. See, sex comes after the eloping of everything else in your life. Now, the Bible gets specific here about about what sexual immorality is. Uh, I'm just going to list a few. Uh, Adultery, right? A sexual act with someone who's not your spouse, that is sexual immorality. Cohabitation falls under the same umbrella. Sexual immorality, prostitution, polygamy, homosexuality, pornography. And, and the list could go on, but actually in verse 12, Paul says there, there are things that happen in, this, in secret that are done in the darkness that I don't even want to talk about, right? Because they're so shameful and disgraceful. And what's interesting is not just the acts that happen, right, the things that you actually do, there's actually an interior thing that's going on too, and that Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he says that, that even if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you are committing adultery. So he's saying that there's something that can go on in the, on, in the heart level, that if you give yourself to it, that that too is called sexual immorality. Now, I gotta be clear here, Jesus isn't, he's not prohibiting acknowledging beauty. He's not prohibiting acknowledging some sort of glory and human beauty. But what he's talking about here is this, this fixation on that, like this lustful, is even a covetous desire. Martin Luther said, you, can, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from making a nest in your hair, right? Lust, giving ourselves uh, this lustful desire, is letting birds make nests in our hair. And Jesus says it's, this is the same thing as adultery, Now, three times in Ephesians, in chapter 4 and twice in chapter 5, Paul speaks of this triad of sexual immorality, of impurity, of covetousness, um, and it's repeated, and by its repetition, we know that Paul is making a strong emphasis here. It's a strong prohibition of this is not what Christians ought to do. But it's not only these behaviors and these attitudes, right, the internal lust and what... He even talks about how we talk about sex. In verse four of chapter five, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Right, he says, this is, this is not what Christians do. Now, it's out of place because in, in the church among the holy ones, this is impurity, this is corrupt, this is corrupt talk. And we are to have no part in these things. In fact, Paul says later on in verse 7, where is it at? He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. He's speaking of the Gentiles, the people who have have a warped sex ethic, right, a a non-Christian sex ethic. He's saying have no part in those things. So even to endorse this perversion of sexuality, we are prohibited to do this. Now, why is this? It's because 
Sexual immorality and crude joking about sexuality makes a mockery of sexuality. The act of sexual immorality defiles sex, and we can also defile it with our words and our attitudes. Now, why does Paul make such a strong sex stance on sexual immorality? Why, why, does he, why is it three times? Why is this something that, I mean, go through almost every epistle, and there's some sort of directive of what a Christian sex ethic looks like? Why does Paul just fixate on this and say, don't do this. Don't give yourselves to sexual immorality. That's it. But let me tell you what it's not. It's not because Christians are prudish. Bunch of tight wads. Don't know how to have a good time. See, that, that is an illogical statement when you have books in the Bible like Song of Solomon. You ever been there? It should, there should be like a PG-13 label on that thing because it's talking about what it looks like to actually enjoy God-given sexuality. So it's not because Paul's a prude. The reason why Paul makes such a strong stance on sexual immorality and prohibiting any and all kinds of perversions around it, it's because Unlike our culture, Christianity has a high regard for sex. See, culture wants to treat it as a commodity, as a marketing tool, as something we do for fun, something that's purely instinctual, that there's no repercussions of it. But Christianity looks at sex through the lens of the gospel and says that, that it's meant to be sacred, that, that, that there's a glory about sex that Christians should uphold. And when we give ourselves to sexual immorality, not only do we pervert sex and diminish its glory, what happens is it perverts us and diminishes our humanity. See, this is, this is why Jesus cares so deeply about human sexuality. It's why Jesus cares about what you do with your body because it's way more than just doing a physical thing. Way more. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this. I'll, I'll take there. I think we got this uh, on the text. You can follow along. I just want to read a little bit. This is a whole other can of worms. I don't want to open up the whole thing, but there's some point that Paul makes in here that we have to see. Halfway through verse 13, he says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God, listen, this is crazy, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you glorify, oops, sorry, do you not know that you're a temple? I lost my spot. Or do you not know? My highlight is messed up. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body 
Now what Paul is saying here, this, this is what I want to take away in this, this moment right now, that you were made for the Lord. Your body was made for the Lord. It's meant to be a temple. Now this is why sex can't merely be a physical action. There is a deep and profound spiritual reality that's wrapped up in the act of sex. And when we give ourselves to sexual immorality, we are defiling the dwelling place, the holy dwelling place, the place, us, that God has made pure and holy through the gospel. We are defacing it and, and, and defiling the holy dwelling place of God. Now, as the creator of heaven and earth redeems all things, among the all things is our sexuality. And so as Christians, we ought to view our sexuality in light of the resurrection, right? We ought to have a vision for resurrection sexuality. It's redeemed. It's not gross. It's not disgusting, but it's beautiful. It's sacred. It's glorious. And since we've been bought with a price, we will glorify God in our body. Now, listen, you cannot say, you cannot say Jesus is Lord and exclude your sexuality from his lordship. Abraham Kuyper says there's not a square inch in all creation where the Lord Jesus doesn't put his finger on and say, mine. Every facet, every area of your life, Jesus is Lord, you can't exclude him. You can't push him to the side when it comes to sexuality because to live a sexual immoral life as the Bible defines it is to live, listen to this, it's to live diametrically opposed to the lordship of Jesus. It's crazy. Verses one and two tell, hey, imitate God in his holiness, walk in love, and the very next thing is contradictory of sexual immorality. They are not compatible it's diametrically opposed to the lordship of Jesus because sexual immorality is anti-holiness and anti-sacrificial love. It's not just that sexual immorality is naughty. It's downright wicked. It's evil. In fact, verse 5 lumps these things together and calls it idolatry. Here's another definition. Idolatry is false and misguided worship of creation, not creator. See, in sexual immorality, what we're saying is God isn't the ultimate thing. God is not the one that I bow to. I'm going to bow to my own sexuality. I'm going to crave, cave to my desires and cravings. It's an idolatry. It's an elevation of something other than God. And when you boil it down to what is it you are exactly worshiping when you partake in a lifestyle of sexual immorality, what it comes down to is this. You are worshiping yourself. That's why, it's, it, that's why it is incompatible with sacrificial love. Sexual immorality says, no, 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 this is self-love. This is what I want. It, it puts me at the center. It's all about me. It's what I want it's about worshiping my own carnal desires and cravings and trying to fill those and constantly going at it, trying to backfill. It's me pursuing what will make me happy or what I think will make me happy, what I think will satisfy me. And we shake our finger at God and say, who are you to get in the way? Now, when we put ourselves at the center, not only are we rejecting God and saying, God, you're, you're, not, you're not worthy 
of my life, of my life worship. Not only are we rejecting God, which is fundamentally what idolatry is, right? It's choosing to love something more than God. Sexual, sexual immorality typically, and, and I would say the majority of the time, comes at the cost of someone else's inherent dignity, value, and worth. See, it's not just a sin that you commit. It's a sin that you commit against other people as well. Right, you either violate that person's human dignity by pulling them into a subhuman way of living in that sinful act of, of sexual immorality, or you're objectifying a person. You're reducing them down to just flesh and bones, right? A, a commodity for you to use and to expel and dispense. To live a life of sexual immorality, whatever the flavor is, it is to abandon and to reject God and your gospel identity. See, when we live into sexual immorality, we're saying, I have an identity that is detached from the gospel, and that's what I'm living into. Whether it's feeding your desires, making yourself you know, feel good, feel happy, whatever it might be, you're choosing to live into a different identity than your gospel identity. You're saying, this thing, this act of sexual immorality makes me feel more alive than what Jesus does. Conducting my life in this way makes me more happy, more joyful than the joy of my salvation. This thing means more to me than Jesus. And so it's not just that you're rejecting the command of God to live in a specific kind of way, but you're rejecting God himself. Now, this is this unrepentant lifestyle. And so when I talk about an unrepentant lifestyle, I'm not, listen, I know everyone in this room is a sexual sinner. I don't even have to ask a question about it. I know it. Whether you're actively engaged in Adultery, pornography, or you got a brothel in your mind, everyone is guilty at one time or another of some kind of sexual sin. And when we talk about sexual sin, so like here, here's the good news is that the church is full of sexual sinners, but it's sexual sinners who are not okay with living a lifestyle of sexual sin. And so when I talk about this lifestyle of sexual immorality, um, it's a lifestyle that, that has no regard for the conviction of the Holy Spirit when it comes to this specific matter that is gonna say, yeah, 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 I'm just gonna keep doing what I want. I don't care what the Spirit has to say. In fact, sometimes people, their ears get so blocked up and their heart, get, heart gets so hard that they can't even hear the conviction that the Spirit's trying to bring. bring. And, and so those people that are in that spot that have no intention of repentance, no intention of bringing their sexuality to the feet of Jesus and living a life that's, that's worshipful to him, this is what an unrepentant lifestyle looks like. And in this unrepentant lifestyle of sexual sin, you're committing two appalling sins that, that is identified in Jeremiah 13. First of all, you're forsaking God. You're forsaking the gospel. You're forsaking your gospel identity. And number two, you're digging for yourselves your own cisterns and they're broken. You're looking to a place for water, but you cannot hold that water. And that, what it offers, cannot quench this underlying spiritual thirst that is wrapped up inside of our sexual longings. And this is the travesty of idolatry, is that it always will lead to a diminished life. You think you're living a good life. You think you're being satisfied. But really, your soul is being chipped away at. It's roding away. And what happens, eventually, you enter into, well, it just becomes another form of enslavement, right? You, you, you become enslaved 
to this life of sexual immorality. You feel like you're trapped. You can't do anything. can't budge. And the master is your sinful desires. See, the danger that Paul warns us about here in verses five through six is that if you persist in this lifestyle of, of sexual immorality, if you continue in unrepentance, rejecting Jesus as the Lord of your sexuality, the danger is that, that you will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. It, that's a hard thing. That, those are strong words. Look at, look at verse, going back to Ephesians 5. Verses 5 and 6. He says, you may be sure of this. You, you can have confidence in this statement that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. See, that, that's what Paul, like the stakes are high. Paul says, you continue, you persist in this way, you'll cut yourself out of the will. The wrath of God will be upon you as with the sons of disobedience. It's strong language. Now, does this mean that God hates sexual sinners, of which we are? No. It doesn't mean that God hates sexual sinners. It means that sexual sinners hate God. Sexual sinners, people who continue in an unrepentant lifestyle, continue to push away from God. Now, this is what the wrath of God is. We, we might think of the wrath of God in sort of like this, this heavy hammer that just brutally falls upon sinners. But that's not the vision of the wrath of God that Paul has. In Romans chapter 1, he tells us what the wrath of God, the wrath of God is, is God giving us over to what we want, even if that thing will destroy us. C.S. Lewis says this, only, there are only two kinds of people in the end. There are those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. See, God gives us over. Porn, homosexuality, lust, adultery, those things don't separate us from God. We separate ourselves from God when we hold on to our idolatry. See, that's what separates us. A refusal to give up, a refusal to repent, a refusal to turn and to trust Jesus as our Lord. Now, our culture hears this and says, come on, come on, Christians. Sex isn't that big of a deal. The stakes for sexual sin can't really be that high. That God would cut you out of the kingdom of heaven because of who you like, who you're attracted to, what you do with your bodies, that seems so dramatic. Right, that, that's, that's what our culture, our culture looks at Christians and says, you guys are a bunch of dummies for thinking this. In fact, because of the cultural pressure, there are many denominations that try to water down this Christian vision for sexuality and, and become more affirming, more coddling of sexual sin, and they look for loopholes, they play this game of chronological snobbery where, oh, we, we've evolved, we know so much more now about it. God's probably changed his mind about this or that or this, so then we can just go ahead and move on and say, okay, it's all cool. They twist doctrine, they ignore key texts, and they say things like, listen, Jesus is more concerned with your heart than he is with who's in your bed. Paul says in verse six, don't 
be deceived. Those are lies straight from the mouth of the devil. They're meant for you to make buddies with sin, right? To call a truce with sin. But what happens, it's like a, it's like a, a pet cub, a lion cub. It's cute, it's cuddly, I like it, it's fun, cool accessory, right? That thing's gonna grow up and it's gonna devour you. It's going to destroy your life. So Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Now, I know that maybe my tone and even the beginning of the sermon comes, comes heavy-handed, that there's an urgency and there's a, a truth that I need to uphold. This is one of those things where we have to be precise and call sin, sin, and call holiness, holiness. There can't be a, a blurry of light. In fact, one of the greatest things, like injustice is when you start swapping those, when you call sin good and, and goodness sin. That, that's the beginning of all injustice. And while there's this really hard line of truth, Paul, listen, he speaks tenderly and pastorally to us. Right? Coming from the heart of Jesus, that he profoundly cares about your soul, and he wants you to resist the damning snares of sexual sin. But Jesus isn't after white-knuckled obedience. Jesus isn't, he's not interested in you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and just uh, gritting your teeth and getting it done. He's not calling you to a life of misery. In fact, it's the opposite. See, on the other side of this calling, and you may not realize this, and the culture sure as heck doesn't want you to know this, but on the other side of this calling for holiness and sexual purity is a lot of joy, is a lot of delight, is a lot of gifts of grace. And Paul gives us in sort of an unlikely and joyful way, like not a, a white-knuckled way, but a joyful way to fight sexual sin and temptation, and he tells us this in verse 4. He says, let, let no filthiness. He says, put off in, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Put that stuff away. It's not proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place. But here he says this, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul says, you want to fight sexual sin? You want to fight against the pull of sexual immorality? Besides prayer, which is probably your greatest weapon, maybe number two is thankfulness. He says, give thanks. Now, why, why, would he, why would this be? Why, why would he say, hey, give, give thanks? Because when you are giving thanks, it changes your fundamental posture of the soul. In sexual immorality, it's craving, it's covetousness, it's wanting, sort of hoarding and, and, and accumulating everything that you desire in your soul. See, it's this covetousness that, that drives our sexual sin. It gets to the root of the matter. But gratitude flips that. See, covetousness says, I want to fill my hands. I'm greedy to fill my hands. Thankfulness looks down at our hands and see, sees that our hands are full. Now, it may not be exactly what we want, but they're full. God has provided grace upon grace for us. Now, what exactly do we need to be thankful for? I'm, I'm wrapping up here. There's five things. I'll move through, quickly through this. Five things that I think, as Christians, we ought to be thankful for. First of all, human dignity. We ought to be thankful for human dignity. When I look at myself in the mirror, when I look at someone, a friend, a coworker, whoever it might be, 
I look at them and I'm thankful for human dignity because that person is more than just flesh. They're more than a piece of meat that I'm meant to drool over. That person has been fearfully and wonderfully made in body and in soul by the Lord and creator, Jesus Christ. Now, culture says that person is just a piece of meat. Take advantage. Do what you gotta do. No, no, no. But Jesus says that person is so much more. There's a depth, there, there's, there's a gravity of this human dignity that the Christianity, no other worldview gives you this. That Christianity gives you this because we've been created in the Imago Dei. There's something inherently glorious and beautiful about all humanity. The second thing that we ought to be thankful for, this might seem counterintuitive, but for your sexuality. God could have made you with a sexual appetite of a potato. Like, wouldn't that be lame? But God gave you a gift of sexuality. He did. It's a gift. Now, this gift, like all gifts, whether it be money, family, I mean, go down the list, your work, all these gifts can be contorted and twisted in a way that that work against what it's meant to do in glorifying God. But this sexuality, this gift of sexuality is a gift and at its core it's good. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world, sexuality was a real thing. And you best believe, oh, I, it was probably really good. If sex is good now, imagine what it was before the fall. See, this tells us that you were made for intimacy. Like your body was designed to experience relation and Intimacy with others, to know and be known. And that's a reason we can give thanks to God. The third thing, which spills right into this, is that God provides a a context for us to express that that sexuality. He gives us spouses. Now, the spouse is a great gift because not only is that spouse your standard for beauty, right? And this is one thing that gets really twisted in how a lot of sexual sin sort of enters into the churches is we start comparing our wives or our spouses or our husbands, whoever it might be, to a different person outside of our marriage. When you are married, your spouse becomes your standard for beauty. You don't compare them to everybody else. Everybody else gets compared to them. And it's that gift, it's within the context of marriage where you can be naked and unashamed. It's a little taste, it's a little taste of the Garden of Eden, of life before the fall. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians, says, listen, you ought to enjoy that gift frequently. Enjoy your spouse. It's a gift from God. Enjoy that. Now, I realize not everybody in this room is is single, or not not everybody's married. There's people in here who are single, or maybe, statistically speaking, um, it's likely that either somebody watching or in this room has a same-sex attraction where you think that just, the spouse thing, does, at least in this season of life, doesn't line up for me. And so how, how in the world can I give thanks for this? How can I give thanks for my spouse if I don't have one yet? Well, God says, listen, I've got another gift for you. And it's community. Christian brotherhood, Christian sisterhood, where you can experience deep familial relationship with other people. Where you can be loved and accepted, whether you're, you're living a life of celibacy, or you're waiting until marriage, this is a group of people, this is where you can find satisfying personal relationships. And it's in this community, you're not treated like a piece of meat or like a weirdo. It's a community that looks at you and sees your humanity, your dignity, your value, your worth, 
and loves you and accepts you and celebrates you and knows you. See, I think... I'll move on. And lastly, the most important thing to be thankful for is Jesus. Check this out. The single celibate God-man loves you with a ferocity that you can't even fathom. Jesus, the single celibate God-man, saves himself for the church. He loves us so thoroughly, so powerfully, that he did not wait for you to master your sexual sin or to make yourself pure. Christ shows his love for us that while you were still a sexual sinner, that he died for you. Jesus was stripped of his dignity. Jesus was objectified and treated like a piece of meat, ridiculed. And though he only loved, his whole life was only love, he perfectly walked in love, he was betrayed and abandoned at the cross so that he could scoop you up. And at the cross, he takes all your shame, all your guilt, whether it's from sexual sin or any other kind of sin, and he sets his love on you. He is the beloved, and you are his in the gospel. He is the true and better lover of the soul. He is the one that, the only one that can satisfy your deepest longings. And if you have, if all that you have is Jesus, then you have enough. You have all that you need. If all you have is Jesus, then you can say no. You can push away. You can walk in a different way, in a different manner. Because Jesus can actually satisfy you. It's because he loves you with a big, undying love. Right? If you go back to to Ephesians 3, the height, the breadth, the depth, the width, I guess two, this huge love Jesus pours upon you. And this love is so strong that it breaks strongholds, even some of the most ferocious and powerful strongholds in sexual sin. God can break through those because when you see Christ's love for you, you will flock to him. You'll want to put away the old self. You'll be eager to imitate Christ in his purity because you have been made pure. You have been made righteous. Your sins are forgiven. they, They were like scarlet. They've been washed white as snow. He set his sacrificial, undying, self-giving love upon you so that you could have life. And every time you mess up, every time you you go back, like as much as you want to live for Jesus and honor Jesus with your sexuality, there will be times when you fail and where you succumb to temptation. And every time you, you mess up, there's an invitation to come back. There's an invitation to remember the gospel, to see how loved You are by Christ. And you come to Jesus and you find a sufficient grace and a sufficient love for your sin. He forgives us and he washes us clean. And not only that, but he gives you a new power, a new power, supernatural power that's implanted in you through the Holy Spirit that compels you in worship of God to live a holy life 
sacrificially loving life. See, this is the power of the gospel. Only the gospel can create this sexual ethic that Christianity envisions. You can't do it by religion. You can't do it by white knuckling. You can't do it by morality. You can't do it by just beating yourself up. Only the gospel can make you live in line with this calling on your life. And every week that we come to the Lord's table, see, this is crazy. Let me go back to, it says in, in verse five, for you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous and that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. Then what the heck are we doing here? What are we doing here? See, the gospel cleanses us. The gospel washes us. And every week we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that because Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed, it cleanses us. It washes us clean. This meal supernaturally empowers us to live this kind of life God calls us into. And though we've broken the covenant, though we've broken God's rules for how to live, Right? We, we've, we've rebelled against the lordship of Jesus in our sexuality. When we repent, we are welcomed back to the table. Every week. When there's repentance, there's embrace. And Jesus today, if you are a repentant believer, and when I say repentant believer, I'm not just saying, like, oh yeah, I feel bad about my sins, but you have actually seen your sin, you're appalled by your sin. In fact, you see that how bad your sin grieves God, and you don't just say, oh, I feel bad about it, but I'm actually going to do a 180. I'm not going to walk in that way. That's what repentance looks like. Now, the invitation is for repentant and baptized believers this morning. If you're not repentant, please do not take this meal. This meal is not for you. But if your faith is in Christ, and you have a desire to honor the lordship of Jesus Christ in every facet of life, the table is open. The reason why it's prohibited, the reason why Paul, even in 1st uh, 2nd Corinthians, says he guards the table is because to take the meal without repenting of your sins is to drink condemnation upon yourself. But the invitation of the gospel, Jesus was condemned for your sins. So flee, repent, turn to Christ. And if you're ready to do that, the table is open today. Father, we thank you we thank you just for your word that you would address such a pressing and relevant conversation, a topic um, <clears throat> that there's so much confusion about, um, a, a topic that can make us uncomfortable, uh, can make us feel a lot of shame and guilt about how we've conducted our life or even maybe we're in the midst of it right now. And God, I just pray that the healing balm of the gospel would be applied to our deep wounds, that we would find Jesus as the truer and better lover of our soul, the, the, the truer and better Hosea who goes after those who are, uh, his wife who is um, living a life of whoredom. And that, that, that could be, uh, that is us, that we constantly turn away from you and yet, like Hosea, you continually to pursue us and bring us back to remind us of your love and to wash us of our sins. God, would you just use this meal to, to remind us, to strengthen us in the gospel for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.